The 100th Psalm, the beginning of verse 1, it says, Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people and the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. For the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. You know, every one of us has a decision to make this week, and it's an important one. And you really can't avoid it. It's a decision that, uh, not that you necessarily go looking for, but is one that is thrust upon you. And the reason that it's thrust upon you is because of the culture that you live in. You see, this week, there's a couple things that are going to happen toward the end of the week. Thursday, there's going to be an experience before you where you have an opportunity for gratefulness. It's an opportunity to think through the things that you're grateful for and to give thanks. It's something that's been very important in uh, our nation from its very beginning, from the pilgrims that came across in the 1600s and the ones that landed at Plymouth. uh, That first uh, harvest time, they decided to give thanks, and it has continued every year since then. It uh, started off with uh, different states coming to the point where they would acknowledge it as a state. But we ended up with different states doing it at different dates on the calendar. So finally, under Abraham Lincoln, he made it a federal thing, and we had a federal holiday. They did try to adjust it once. Uh, Who was it? I think it was Franklin D. Roosevelt uh, tried to adjust it during the Depression to try to boost the economy a little bit. So he backed it up a week uh, for financial reasons. And society pretty much flat out rejected it. In derision, they called it Franksgiving instead of Thanksgiving. So he, he reluctantly moved it back. And we've been celebrating it every year since. But here's the deal. Toward the end of the week, we have Thursday, which is our Thanksgiving, and there's wonderful opportunities to be grateful. And let me ask you this. Are we more inclined to hear on the news the next day that people were lining up at stores at 3 and 4 o'clock in the morning? Or are we more inclined to hear that people spent three and four hours worshiping? In our society, unfortunately, we're much more likely to see people go out and spend that kind of time over a new TV than we are showing gratefulness to God. And I don't think it's just a cultural thing. I think it's a universal thing. I think as people, we have a struggle with that. You know, this last week on Wednesday, in our club jam time, we were talking to the kids and we were looking at what happened in the Garden of Eden. And we were talking about the garden that Eve would have been in and what a garden that must have been. You realize it's very possible, maybe even probable, that every fruit and vegetable that we have today could have all been in that one garden. Can you imagine the variety that was available to Adam and Eve within that garden. And then here comes the serpent. And the serpent comes along and he asks her, did God say you can't eat from any of these trees? Which of course was not what he said. There's only one tree that they weren't allowed to eat up from in the whole garden. That full garden full of trees, full of varieties of fruit. And there's only one tree in the whole garden that you can't eat from. And what I find amazing is that within a few short statements, a few short questions, Eve is no longer focused on all the amazing things that God has given her to eat, she's focused on the one thing she can't have. And to be honest, I can see that in my life. I can see times where I have so much, and there's times where I'm more focused on the the one thing that I can think of that I'd like to have that I don't have than I am on all the things that that were already on that list before, and I already have them all. And so I look at Eve, and I think, now remember, this is before sin even. 
Right? This is before sin, but with a few short questions, the devil was able to get her focus off of all the wonderful variety that God had provided for her and focus on the one thing that you can't have. And so when I look back at our very origin, I think how easy it was to get our focus off of all that we have and focus on the one thing that we don't. It corrupts our perspective. It corrupts our gratefulness. It, it leads us down a path of greed, trying to get something that we want that we don't have. And then I think also, I think of when Jesus was ministering here on this earth. There's a time in Luke chapter 17, there's 10 lepers that come to Christ and they want to be healed. And he heals them all, all 10 of them. And then they all leave. And then one of them turns and comes back and thanks him for it. And Jesus says, I thought there were 10 of you that were healed, but only one came back. Where's the other nine? Where's the, where's the gratitude? Where's the gratefulness? I think that he's dealing more with it than just for those individuals. I think that he's kind of extrapolating it out, right? To deal with a broader subject, to be able to deal with a broader group than those ten lepers. He's kind of making a comparison to our human experience, not just to those ten, but how does it impact each of us? If that's the case, if then if you transfer the math, and I don't, I don't think that's a necessarily the equation that he's trying to make, but if you transfer the math, then that means that we're probably 90 times less likely to express gratitude for something that we already have as opposed to asking for something that we would like. Our human nature tends to focus on the things that we don't have and it's much less likely to look with gratitude for the things that we do have. And so I think there's that struggle that's built right into us. And I think that might be why we find things like Thanksgiving, and the very next day, we have Black Friday. So we have a tremendous opportunity for gratitude, a tremendous opportunity for greed, stacked one right against another. In fact, when you think about it, it's kind of consistent. I mentioned it a little bit at Halloween time. Because Halloween, if you look back at the origin of Halloween, Halloween is actually started out being about All Saints Day. It was All Saints Day was the next day. But then the concept of Halloween came to be, well, since All Saints Day is this day, when everybody's going to be good, then we need to have the day right before it for everybody to fill up on the bad before they have to give all that up to be good on All Saints Day. That was the origin of the idea. And then I didn't even know till a couple of years ago about uh, Mardi Gras. I'd never been to Mardi Gras, never really knew what it one was, but I was watching it on, watching the news one day and they were showing a parade at Mardi Gras and all these people are dressed like, like cardinals and bishops of the church or something like that. And I'm like, why is there so many floats where they look like popes and cardinals and all these guys? I don't get it. Well, they went on to explain the history or the concept of Mardi Gras. And Mardi Gras was, we're coming up on Lent. Lent is the idea that for your faith, you give something up. It's kind of like the idea of a fast. They give up meat. They give up different things for their faith. Now, here's where Mardi Gras comes in. Mardi Gras is, pretty soon we got to give all that stuff up for a while. So let's indulge. Mardi Gras is all about gluttony and drunkenness because you're going to have to give that stuff up for a while, so you better get your fill now before you come into it. Do you see the point that I'm getting at? We find that our even our good holidays end up with a opportunity to do the opposite real close to them sometimes. In fact, even kind of consistently so. So it's good for us to be aware of that because as we're looking at this week, this week is a very important week to us as individuals, as a church, as a nation. Because the principles of this that are on the line this week are very important to us. Because gratitude is a big part of our relationship with God. 
When Israel was out in the wilderness and they lacked the gratitude for the salvation they got getting pulled out of Egypt and they complained about their situation in the wilderness, God took it very personally. It was the opposite of faith for them to complain about their situation, for them to be focused on what they didn't have instead of what they did have. That's the crux. I don't care if you go shopping on Friday. It's not about that at all. It's about what is your perspective? What is your mindset? Are you thankful? Are you satisfied in God to the point where you're ready to express it? Whereas even in this psalm, we're chomping at the bit to express it. Well, I hope you are. I hope I am. And that's actually what we're participating in here this morning as we consider this 100th psalm. And that is this contrast between gratefulness and greed. Now, you're not going to find the contrast within the psalm. The contrast is in our life. The contrast is in our weakness toward greed and our need to be grateful. And the contrast is in the events of our week that line up before us where we're going to have both of them opportunities in front of us. And how are we going to line up with those opportunities? Well, as we consider that this morning, this gratefulness versus greed, the psalm here points out three essentials of a godly thanksgiving. The first one that we find is cooperation. You'll notice all the way through the psalm as we read through it, it's not so much a personal thing. Now, your attitude towards it and everything is a personal thing, but Thanksgiving never stays individualistic. This is something that is meant to happen corporately, that is meant to happen together. In fact, when you look at, look at the words that he uses within, within the psalm, he talks about coming before his presence. He says, serve the Lord with gladness. In verse 2, come into his presence with singing. In verse 4, he says, I will enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. What, what is that talking about? It's not talking about kind of an ethereal uh, symbolism. It's talking about something very specific. On the temple, there were 12 gates. The courts inside the temple, there's the court of the Gentiles, and then the court of Israel, and then the court of the men, and the court of the women. And, and so it's looking at the layout of the temple, and before that, the tabernacle that they packed around with them. And so he's saying, look, we need to come before God's presence. They're coming together to offer their thanksgiving, to celebrate their gratefulness before God. Not only that, but the very first verse, it says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. I like that. I like that phrase, make a joyful noise. He's not looking at the harmony, he's looking at the heart. But he tells them, he says, make a joyful noise all the earth. All the earth. This is, this is something that needs to go to everybody, that needs to be experienced by everybody. This isn't fulfillment of, of the promise that was given to Abraham. Remember, after the world was divided by language because of what happened at the Tower of Babel, God chose one person, Abraham, and He gave this covenant, this promise to Abraham. It says, The Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you know what? It's through the descendants of Abraham that we have Christ. And what happened after Christ? During Christ's life here on this earth, He presented Himself as the Messiah, the Savior to Israel. And then very shortly after that, He, through His apostles, pushed it out to the rest of the world to try to reach the rest of the world. In fact, we find in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's talking to His apostles. And you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem 
and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus said, now at this time, now the gospel is going to go out from here. Now the blessing that was promised to Abraham that would go out to all the, all the world needs to do that. It needs to spread across the world. It's exactly why the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 17, when he's talking to the people in Athens, he said he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. We all track back to Adam and Eve. In fact, we all track back to Noah and his wife. We're all family in that sense. We're all related. We're all created by God. And so there's a oneness to it. And you know what? That oneness is going to be experienced finally and completely in the end. Because we find in Revelation chapter 7, which I believe is describing the rapture of the church, he says, after this I looked, and this is a vision that's taking place where the Apostle John is getting to see the gates of heaven, see, see the presence of God. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. So you see, this is an experience that is supposed to spread through the whole world. Because all across heaven at that point, there's going to be this celebration of the thanksgiving and gratefulness to our God for what he's done for us. And in a sense, as Christians, even now across this world, as we offer up thanks to God each week and as we pray and things like that, we're in a sense connected to the other Christians that are praying and offering God gratitude around the world. But you know what? The way that he's really focused on that happening is he he recognizes a global aspect to it. But you know how it really happens is we cooperate together. We We enter His gates. We come into His presence. We gather in His courts. If we're going to compare it to what the the writer of the psalm is doing there, we go to church. We gather together and sing the songs together. We look into His Word together. We participate in these things together. That's what He's calling the nation of Israel to do at that point, is this corporate worship, gathering together. That's what we're supposed to do. It takes that cooperation Not only is there cooperation, but there's also celebration. He says, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with, enter His gates, verse 4, with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. And so it keeps using a variety of words to describe pretty much the same actions. But he says, what are we doing? We're celebrating. We're celebrating. This is something that we're, that we're excited about. This isn't just fulfilling a duty. This isn't uh, participating because, well, we're supposed to. This is participating because we're glad to. Participating because the joy that's within our heart, because of what God has done for us and is doing for us and in us, uh, cannot be suppressed anymore. And that's really kind of the flavor that you get from this song, isn't it? That he's just so excited to come in to the gates of God, to enter the gates of God with his other people of his same nation, the nation of Israel. For us, uh, people of our same faith. 
for us to enter into these doors, to enter into this sanctuary, to offer up these songs of praise and, and sing of the adoration of God and share our testimonies with one another and, and dig into God's Word together. He's excited about it. I like the Psalm, Psalm 122, verse 1. He says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. He was glad. I know I've told you guys many times, but I promise you not as many times as I told my children. There were times when the question would come up. Now, obviously, being a pastor, not as much as maybe it would come up if I wasn't the pastor. But where I'd say, you know what, do I have to go to church today? Every time. No, you don't have to go to church today. You get to go to church today. This is a special day. This is a great opportunity. This is not something that you have to do. This is something you get to do. From the time I came to Christ, actually even a little bit before it, that, that's what church has been for me. I love it. I love gathering together. I love being with you. And I, I love talking about our faith. And I love digging in God's Word together. And I'm not that good at it, but I love singing the songs together. And I, I just, it's, it's one of the highlights of my, my week, big time. And you know what? I, I found myself thinking a little bit this weekend. If, if you don't love gathering together and worshiping, and are you really going to like heaven? Maybe it shines a little light on whether or not we're going. Because you know what? There's just something built within Christians that when you, when you experience the forgiveness of Christ and the love of God that comes to you through that sacrifice of Jesus Christ and His resurrection from the dead, it's not a duty. It's a delight. Now, I know there's pressures. I don't want to make you feel guilty. I know there's a lot of work and there's a lot of pressure. But you know what? It's just so worth it. I've, I've, I've often said the most worshipful people uh, on the planet of their earth are young moms going, taking their kids to church. Because you know what? They've had so much to do that morning just to get there. Just to get there. And you know what? You've already been worshiping and you haven't even felt like it. Because worship means that you're counting something for someone as worthy. And you're saying, I'm willing to do all of this for them. That's worship. Because you're showing how valuable that is to you. Well, if you're going to experience gratefulness, it has to come from the heart. It's not something that's, that's duty. It's joyful. It's glad. It's praising. It's, it's excited about this worship, this opportunity. And then lastly, we're going to see that it also involves comprehension. So it involves cooperation. We need to participate in this thing together. It's a celebration because it's a joyful and glad. But then there's also a comprehension because he tells them that they need to know something. He says in verse 3, Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. You see, that's what it's kind of founded on. Our, our gratitude is not just a, it's not just a warm fuzzy. It's not just a, a feeling that's based on emptiness. It's, it has a foundation for it. There's reasons for our gratitude. Do you know why we should be grateful? Because we got things to be grateful for. There's good reason for you to be grateful. And that's what he's going to do here within this passage is he's going to point out about four different things that our gratefulness should be established upon. The first thing is God's sovereignty. In verse 3 there, it says, Know that the Lord, He is God. Now, what, is, what does that mean? Know that the Lord is God. Well, it means that God's in control. He's, that's, that's what a God is. God is the Almighty. He's all-powerful. He's in control. So we can rest in Him. Do you know what it also means? It also means He is God. You're not. I find a lot of joy in that, actually. Because you know what I find? That when I am kind of scurrying around fast and furious trying to make things happen the way that I want them to happen, life isn't all that pleasant. I was thinking about this in a very practical way not long ago. A couple months ago, it was on my mind a lot. 
when I recognize that God is God, He made me so there's limited amount of ability there. And He made the weak so there's a limited amount of time. So if in my ability I can't get the things done within that week, it means it wasn't God's will for me to do it. Now, I have a responsibility in structuring my week to put first things first. But you know what? If there's more in a week than I can do, then obviously it's not God's will for me to do all that stuff. I better go back to the drawing board and decide what is God's will for me to do and what isn't God's will for me to do. But you know what? When I let Him be in control of that kind of stuff, (laughs) isn't that funny? I let Him be in control. God just is in control. When we recognize that we're not so much, our lives get a lot better. We're looking at the sovereignty of God. God's in control. I'm not. And so, boy, there goes a lot of pressure off of my shoulders. Not only do we need to know about God's sovereignty, He also points out God's creation. It's He that made us. God created us. And we're going to get into what all these mean in just a minute here, how they, how they impact our life, because they impact your life in a very practical way. But He focuses on God's creation. It is He that made us. And then notice it says, "...and not we ourselves." In other words, how many self-made men and how many self-made women do we have in this room? Not a one. Not a one. The things that we have and the opportunities that we have and everything everything is given to us by God. It's God that made us, not ourselves. So we can relax a little bit. But then also, not only does he focus on God's creation, he focuses on God's redemption. Redemption. And the reason I point to that is because the next part says we are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. How do we get to be God's people through the redemptive work that is in the cross of Jesus Christ? Ever since man first sinned in the garden and rebelled against God, God began to promise that this innocent one was going to die for the sins of the guilty to give us not just a covering for our sins, but completely take them away. He was going to redeem us back to himself. Well, it's through the redemption, God buying us back to Himself through the blood of His Son, Jesus Christ, on that cross, that we are God's people. I know that this psalm was written before Christ died for our sins, but it would not have eluded Him. Even though He doesn't specifically call it redemption, they had a whole network of sacrifices that were offered up to make them acceptable to God that God's people participated in. And so they experienced that redemption in that way. And then lastly... God's character. It says in verse 5, For the Lord is good, His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. God's love and faithfulness as a believer, you cannot go someplace that you will not find it, where you will not experience it. And so it focuses on God's character. Let's think about how that impacts our life. What do we experience through God's sovereignty? We experience humility. When we get an understanding of God's sovereignty, it impacts our life in a way that we are humbled. And there's great peace inside that humility because all of a sudden we realize that we don't have to be in control of everything. We don't have to make everything happen. We can just humbly allow God to be in control and submit ourselves to His will. But then also, in creation, I think that this has impacted our society in ways beyond measure. The way it impacts us is this. It's in purpose. In God's creation, we experience purpose. Why do we exist? Why are we here? If you acknowledge creation, that God created us, that He created this world and He created us to live in it, then you acknowledge that there's some reason that we're here. He did this for a reason. What does that mean? If I'm made for a reason, then that means I have a purpose. I have purpose to my life. I have value in that way. My life isn't meaningless. My my life is purposeful. Why? It's all because He created us. Our society really needs to wake up because in in early American history, we all knew this. 
There weren't many atheists in our early American history. There were believers. And everybody recognized, even though they'd have disagreements for different elements of the faith, absolutely. And important disagreements also. But everybody knew that we were here by God. And that we have, because of that, we have purpose, we have reason. You know what? It wasn't until not too long ago that we started kicking things out of the school system like prayer and Bibles and stuff like that, where we, where we started building a society more built on the idea of scientific discovery and things like that than on the revealed Word of God. And let me ask you, what has it gotten us? Back when we worshipped God in the day as a nation, back when that was the prevailing mindset, we didn't have school shootings. We didn't have, we didn't have a lot of the things that we participate in now. I'm not saying it's perfect. There were some, there were some atrocities within our society, but at least there was the framework there, the, the ideology there to start to begin to overcome those things and get rid of them. You know, I was reading a book recently called, uh, uh, The Book That Made Your World, and it talks about the Bible's uh, impact on Western culture. And it pretty much is the impact on Western culture. They talked about music. And they compared music of generations previous that looked at even music as being a gift of God. And so there's purpose and reason for it. And, and it had a function of exalting God and being orderly and stuff like that. And, they, and then they compared it to like Kurt Cobain. His music and, and his songs showed the darkness of the Buddhism that he followed. And how life is about pain and suffering and rather than life is about purpose and meaning that you get from a biblical worldview. And it was really interesting to read through this and I didn't realize do you realize that before the 1960s, 1960s, there almost was no such thing as teen suicide? didn't exist. But you know what? Our philosophy as a nation kind of changed and started going a different direction. And then pretty soon, kids are killing themselves. And they're killing each other. And suicide is now one of the leading causes of death among teenagers. We're paying a heavy price for a shift in our worldview. Meaning purposeful creation. But you see, what is the prevailing thought of the day? Where does my existence come from? The prevailing thought of the day is you're just a cosmic accident. Somehow an explosion led to all of this. And, and, uh, and so, you know what? There really is no creator, which means there's no reason, which means there's no purpose, which means there's no value. And so we wonder why life is so cheap in our society. It's the outcome of our philosophies. But what do we see in creation? In creation, we have meaning. You have purpose. If we're going to tell our kids that you're just a cosmic accident, so there's really no plan for your life, there's really no purpose for your life, there's really no meaning for your life, well then, when they act like there's really no purpose, meaning, or anything to their life, why would we be surprised? There is a reason for you. And it's a glorious one. You're made in the image of God and you and you're have the purpose of bringing honor and glory to Him, radiating that glory from your own being. You were created on purpose for a reason, by an amazing God. In God's redemption, we experience belonging. He says, what is the outcome of that redemption? You are my people. You are the sheep of my pasture. You see, I have acceptance before God. I have belonging with God, which is a deep need within our human souls. And through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have exactly that. And then lastly, in God's character, we experience security. We experience security. That's another deep need that we have as individuals. We recognize it, I think, mostly in in kids. I remember um, thinking about this often when my kids were little because I recognized that security for my kids, security was an important part of their healthy development, that they needed to feel secure within their family structure, secure within their relationships, within their home. It's from that uh, groundwork of security that they can grow and flourish 
And so I remember thinking about that a lot with my kids, but it's not just with kids, it's with all of us. I think it's part of the reasons, it's one of the motivations for entering God's gates of thanksgiving because we do get around people of common faith and we do receive encouragement and that bolsters the security that we feel in God. Well, notice what he ends this psalm with. It says, His steadfast love endures forever and His faithfulness to all generations. In other words, what God is saying in your life and in mine is, I'm not going anywhere. We know that we can endure all things. We can face all things because we're never alone. So as this week approaches and we get our opportunities to participate in these different things, let's choose gratefulness over greed. Let's keep our focus. I know that you've got Christmas shopping to do and all those things, but let's keep our focus where it needs to be. Let's keep our focus on the gratitude that we have to God in this, in celebrating this Christmas season and the joy that we have because He sent His Son into this world. Let's keep our gratitude and what He's done for us as individuals, as families, as church, as a nation, and celebrate this Thanksgiving appropriately.